You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to SEPCON 95, the first annual conference of the Separation of School and State Alliance, held November 10, 11, and 12, 1995 in Arlington, Virginia. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation Alliance, and permission is hereby granted if you would like to make gift copies for friends. With so much wit, precision, and intelligence as Richard Mitchell. As professor of classics at Glassboro State College, he edited and published The Underground Grammarian. His book credits include Less Than Words Can Say, The Leaning Tower of Babel, A Gift of Fire, and A Graves of Academy. And it was, it's been a, uh, uh, a circuitous and interesting relationship that the Professor Mitchell and I have had over the last few months as he has, um, well, I think it may be best just to let him speak for himself because at this conference, not only are we aimed toward the separation, most of us that are here believe in the separation of school and state, but Dr. Mitchell would like to present, and I encouraged him to do so, why he fears the separation of school and state. So will you please give a warm welcome to someone who is going to tell us what is wrong with this idea as he sees it. Will you welcome, please, Richard Mitchell. Can you stand here? Thank you. Uh, uh, time, is, time is short. I want to bring before you two men. One of them is a superintendent of schools in a, well, a, the capital city of a state uh, out there uh, somewhere. Uh, the citizens uh, rose against him, uh, claiming that the children who X years ago could barely read and write could now not read and write at all. And uh, there was public clamor. <clears throat> he answered the public clamor. <clears throat> he said, well, you know what, uh, what uh, educationist administrators are like. They're uh, like the line in Elliot, uh, politic, cautious, but a bit obtuse. Uh, he said, uh, don't worry about that, he said. The age of information is coming. It will not be long before children won't even have to read and write because we can tell them all they need to know. I wrote about him. I, 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 I skewered him up mercilessly. I was a son of a bitch in those days. I... Condemnation, how dare you assault an educated man like that who is in Sherman. But I got many other letters from city uh, saying, thank God somebody has done this. And finally, I got a phone call from his secretary. Secretary said, well, you know, this thing that you have published, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really not right. And I said, well, oh, God, I'm sorry. Did I misquote the man? Just, you know, tell me what he really said, and I will set the record straight. I said, well, no, you did, no, you didn't misquote him, but, you know, it, it wasn't, I mean, he didn't quite mean, I don't know what she was babbling about, and I said, I, oh, I'm awfully sorry, I, uh, I, I can't do anything. I, if it were a misquote, I, I could fix it. But she had called up, and he was worried. I'm happy to report to you that it didn't hurt his career at all. He went on to uh, higher uh, jobs, higher pay at a uh, bigger city, so, so no harm was done. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I liked his, uh, his idea. 
Uh, tell them all they need to know. Uh, wouldn't that be simple? And I got thinking about him and what seems to me the heart of all educational problems, and that is the idea of literacy. It is not, as Mill suggests, a... What was the term that we were given last night? Uh, <clears throat> one of the outputs of education. In some sense, it is education entire. But I am talking about literacy. I'm not talking about reading and writing. Reading takes place when you look up from the page. Receiving is what you get from the page. To read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, I think, is what the prayer book says of the scripture, but it ought to be said of everything. Receiving is not reading. Information is not knowledge. Information is not education. It's cheap. It lies in the streets. Anyone can pick it up, and it's all dying. Today you know where the post office is, but the day will come when the post office moves, and all information like is like this. And the place of information in school is very important, but it is of no importance in education. Aristotle did not know the capital of Phoenix. That is, if Phoenix has a capital. Does Phoenix have a capital? It might be Santa Fe, I think, is the Aristotle did not know these things, and it didn't matter a damn And information. Now, what this man had, at the time he did this, there was a great fad of futurism in the educationist establishment. They do these fads over and over again. As you know. And futurism was the thing, and there were people putting themselves forth. I am a futurist. What the hell does that mean? A tea leaf reader? But they were very confident. This man was a superintendent of schools, and he'd read damn few books. There's no need to do that to be a superintendent of schools. But he had read what the studies have shown. They always do that. And surely he had read some futurist who had said, Ah, the day is coming. We'll have the Internet. We'll have... He didn't say it, but I think he should. We'll have loudspeakers on the telephone poles so that we can tell them all they need to know. And the poor horse's ass just said this to the reporters. Well, we'll tell them all they need to know. He had not read that line. He had received it. He was an illiterate man. Now, man number two was on the horizon. First of all, I have to quote scripture to you. I hope you don't mind. I must preface this with a comment from Aquinas. Aquinas, in his day, too, confronted the problem of fundamentalism. He addressed himself at great length, as was his custom, to this question, is the scripture the word of God? Is this, in fact, what God speaking through the agency of his chosen? And Aquinas concluded, yes, it is. Indubitably. We, we, we cannot question that. We're not allowed to question that. But... We also can't be sure that we know what it means. That was the only little caveat that he made, but it's a tremendous one. I'm going to read scripture to you. <clears throat> this is the text for the day. Egypt riseth up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up and I will cover the earth, and I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Come up, ye horses. 
rage his chariots and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall satiate and be made drunk with their blood. And then in a slightly different voice, Go up into Gilead, and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. Now, I like to uh, believe, I, I, I'm a fundamentalist, I believe that God, every word, so I've read God, I, I, I've read T.S. Eliot, I've read Wallace Stevens, those men are difficult. And I've read John Donne and Gerard Manley Hopkins. God, what poetry. I'm oh, sorry about that. It is endless, as you know. How deep can we go? To read it, must we not have control of something that probably that poor superintendent never even heard of? I've noticed this with all educationists. They have no, no detector for irony. They, they cannot smell metaphor, ambiguity utterly escapes them. In a sonnet of Shakespeare, so many considerations like this lead us deeper and deeper, and lead us to say, after years, oh, of course, how wrong I was. So God has written this. Do you think that God is less of a poet? Then T.S. Eliot, or Wallace Stevens, or Dante? Shame on you. If their poems are deep, will his not be bottomless? This is a naughty poem. This is, this is, this is hard to read. On whose side are we? Who, who's taking vengeance? If the Lord God of hosts is taking the vengeance, is it on these Ethiopian allies of Egypt? Let's say... It's worth a lot of brooding. Now, I want you to think about the last line again. It is addressed to some virgin who is called the daughter of Egypt. It says, listen, virgin, go up on the mountain and take bomb. It's not going to help you a damn bit. Thou shalt use many medicines in vain. You're not going to be cured. And these are God's words, and this is the poem, okay? Is that medical advice? Would you read that as medical advice? Oh, boy, bomb. Uh, oh, uh, medical. If you think it's about aspirin, cortisone, uh, if so, you're a lousy reader. You're, you're just no... You're no damn good. All right, man number two. He lives out in the country. Poor man. Works hard. Hasn't got much, doesn't know much. His life is such that if you were to pick him up and move him 300 years into the past, somewhere on the outskirts of Dresden, nothing much would change for him, except that his toilet bowl and his car would disappear. But the life would be pretty much as it is. I mean, the kind of person, we, we, we can't use the word in America, but used to be called a peasant. A hard worker, a decent guy, and he has a son, and the son is sick. The son has some kind of a tumor or something growing in his belly. 
and everything the sun eats, the sun eats mostly Cheerios, but it doesn't matter because everything the sun eats is consumed by this thing that's growing in this brilliant, the cutest starving to death. The uh, man has read this passage. Well, um, leave that on the table. I'm not sure he's read the passage. But the man knows this line. Oh, virgin, daughter of Egypt, go up into Gilead and take balm. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. And so he says, God is against doctoring. God forbids medicine. So he won't do any doctoring for the boy or do anything. And little by little, the boy dies. The boy dies. Some people are, oh, no, dad, boy died. They get some kind of court case. The man is accused of, I don't know, willful negligence contributing to, I don't know, so forget and he's, he's uh, convicted. He can't believe it. He can't, he can't believe it. He says, he just, he's, I can't understand. I'm quoting him. Why wouldn't anybody stand up for God's rights? And he says to a reporter, quizzes about it, he says, I, he says, I've got this verbatim. It's really good. I, I want you to read that and, and see what you expect somebody to take out of that there. I'd like you to tell me what your interpretation is. I'd, I'd like you to study the whole thing out. The implication is that he has done that. Somehow missed the mark. But he hasn't done that, and you know that he hasn't done that. Some backwards preacher has told him that. Oh, God, I don't know what kind of group people belongs to. But, but somebody has said, that's a boy, boy. Here it is. It's right in God's word. They always spell it G-A-W-D. It's right here in God's word. Medicine? Mm -hmm. Not going to work. Go ahead and uh, do something else. I went to school a long time ago, and I was not an English major, although I've been an English teacher all my life, not classics, as that thing says. I didn't take any English courses in undergraduate. I was a history major. I didn't believe in the English department, I think. That happened to me later in various different ways. I'm wearing my old school tie today uh, in honor of this and thinking about them and, and uh, what I did there. It, it left me with the lifelong habit of frequently preferring historians to novelists and poets, and I read them a lot. And I recently read Paul Johnson's great massive tome called Modern Times. You should read it if you hadn't read it. I was startled in the last chapter. The last chapter was stunning. Johnson starts out by saying, you know, historians can tell us what happened, and they should, of course, but they ought also to pay attention to what should have happened but didn't. And give that some thought. And he said, here, if we look at this whole century from the 20s on, we see that religion should have dried up and blown away. But it didn't. And then he's going on, and the big chapter is still lying in wait for you. And I said, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to like be interested to see what he says about the persistence of the religions. And the rest of the chapter is a horror story. It is about the persistence of the religions. And it is about what they have become. Warring camps. Each one enabling its adherents to throw hand grenades into their baby carriages in good conscience. Then there may be other signs of the persistence of religion, but Johnson didn't find them. I'm trying to find them myself. So I worry about uh, 
worry about that a lot because your movement, the separation of school and state, seems to me infested by religiosity. I really don't mean by religion. I, I make in my head, at least, and sometimes in writing, a very serious distinction. I spell religion with a capital R. I think it is innate. I think it is the preeminent sign of a human being. Religion, linking, tying things back together, detecting relationships where none were thought to exist. Living in, I'll take my breakfast companion here into my... Living, living continuously in suspicion. Ah, there must be meaning here. That religion. The religions are something else again, and I always spell them with a small r, and I'm sorry, I'm sure to offend a lot of people here, but, well, I've done that before, and I can get through it. <laughs> I know who will profit most from the separation of the school and state. And it is the people on both sides of the aisle who want to indoctrinate their children in their own beliefs. It cuts both ways. I wrote an article once about uh, the atheist child. Wonderful, this man sued the school system. It's in Long Island somewhere. Because his atheist child, I think the boy was seven, had been irreparably damaged by hearing in the halls the singing of Christmas carols. Irreparable damage had been done to this boy. I brooded on it then, I brooded on it. I wonder if he would have made the same complaint if they had been humming Christmas carols. <laughs> because that's where the religion is. In the music. Not in the words, but the man was surely not smart enough to think that out. It's an interesting case. I don't know how the hell it came out, and I don't really care. Uh, so now I, I want to introduce you. He's out there somewhere. Well, I think I've mentioned the third man. The third man is everywhere. It was the third man who said to that superintendent, we'll tell them all we need to know. And that's all you have to tell them. It was the third man who said to that superintendent, this is what it means. That's the way of it. And I don't want those people having anything to do with schools. I don't want those people having anything to do with children. I can't stop that. But if you separate state and school, you'll give them a license. I will be... No, I'm not, I'm not a fighter anymore. I don't care. I have to tell you this truth. I don't care. I don't care if you succeed or fail. I don't care if the schools get good. Schools get, I, don't, I don't care. But I think that there are other people... Now look, when I skewered that school superintendent, oh, I got upset. Uh, his secretary called up. There were letters. Suppose I skewer the man who advised this guy who starved his child to death. A, he doesn't give a damn. B, if he does give a damn, he's the kind of guy who'll, what, put a rattlesnake in my mailbox? Shoot me in a parking lot? In the name of God? Yes. This sort of thing happens. I'm afraid of him. I'm not afraid of the school superintendent. I know a lot of school teachers. They know the doctrine they're supposed to preach. They give it lip service. Yeah, what the hell. In short, they are hypocrites. Thank God.
I think of the teachers in these Christian schools. They mean it. I don't want them. A last quick vignette. I was a young boy. I joined the Communist Club at the University of Chicago. There's a very pretty girl sitting at that card table when you sign up. I became a young communist. They invited me finally. We go, let's go to a meeting. We'll go down to Halstead Street. This is in Chicago. And we'll hear from some men who um, tell us stuff. I went. went with several friends. I took two big guys with me. I was a little guy. Halstead Street was a rough section. We went up upstairs, rickety stairs, little wooden camp chairs. We sat there. I'm sitting there, and it doesn't take me long. I said, oh, my God, these people really are communists. <laughs> these people really are what you see here. The teachers in those schools, they mean it. And I am afraid of them. And I am afraid that you will let them loose upon me and those who like me. And thereabout bring something quite the opposite of what you had uh, intended. I am getting a signal from my floor manager. Please stop. Here I stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. It is the position of the uh, first responder, both of the responders, to uh, embellish uh, or to uh, disagree or to uh, chastise or to whatever uh, they would like. So let's ask Dwight Lee, the pr professor of economics from uh, University of Georgia, to step up here first. And let me tell you one quick thing about Dwight, and that is that I owe him an immense debt um, which I may never be able to fully repay, but I want to thank him at every opportunity. In 19, I was very much in favor of vouchers as a stepping stone toward the separation of school and state, as many of my friends still are. And uh, I read his article, um, and in fact it's in the, will you hold up the orange uh, uh, covered uh, book, Tax Vouchers, Some Concerns from the, Tax Funded Vouchers, Some Concerns from the Freedom Perspective. And it is, there's a copy of it in there that's been hand-stolen from Freeman Magazine. But in July of 19... 86, I was reading this article, and uh, in, in two sentences, I did a 180-degree uh, turn in 179 milliseconds. I mean, it was just one of the few times in my life that I figured out I was wrong so quickly. Usually, I do it on the installment plan, and uh, so I owe him a great, uh, a great debt, and will you please welcome uh, my friend and uh, occasional mentor, Dwight Lee. Thank you very much, Marshall. I hope you can hear me. My voice, uh, well, it sounds like I'm going through puberty, but actually I did that a long time ago. I never recovered from that. Maybe my voice knows it. Uh, Marshall's made a mistake here. I'm an economist, and you should never put an economist up after somebody who has the ability to make an erudite uh, presentation. I, I, I know about supply and demand curves and not much more than that. But I, I do want to, in response to Richard make a couple of comments, things that his comments prompted uh, me to think about. It seemed to me, and, and, and I don't hear that well, you probably can't hear me because of my voice, don't worry about it, I can't hear you because my hearing aid, the batteries I think have gone flat, but uh, uh, I'm not sure I heard everything Richard said, but it, it seemed that one thing he was saying was there's great danger here in, in religious fervor. Uh, maybe I didn't hear all that he said, but it seemed to me that 
The real danger is not in religious fervor. The real danger is in religious fervor coupled with state power. I think there is a lot of history of atrocities done when you couple those together. And instead of making one fearful of the separation of school and state, it seems like that history would make one happy to embrace the idea of the separation of school, I say church, school and state. For the simple reason that if you separate the school from the state, you strip state power away from some of the most religiously fervent people in America today. And those are the people who worship at the altar of the state. Those are the environmentalists. They're the ones that are controlling the schools today. And they're the ones that are controlling or trying to control our children in the public schools. I say trying to control. One of the most encouraging things I've heard about public schools recently is when someone told me that our children aren't learning anything in school. You know, we, 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 have, we have people who, who believe that you have committed blasphemy, your sin, you're going straight to purgatory or worse, if, if you're seen with a styrofoam cup. That is an environmental killer and we've got to save the earth. I'm not sure why these guys are, limit themselves to saving the earth. I think next they'll probably be wanting to save the whole universe. But the real fundamentalist Religious fervor, the dangerous ones, are the ones who teach environmentalism and state power. And I, and I think that's what we need to worry about. And I think the separation of school and state is a good, good way of stripping that power away from these people. One other comment, the thing that Richard started off with, I think is very interesting and speaks to what we're here about. <clears throat> he, talked, he quoted this fellow who talked about the age of information is coming. So students don't have to know how to read and write. Well, I think this fellow was half right. The age of information is coming. Uh, and because of that, and because of technological advances, students won't have to learn how to read and write in public schools, or any other schools for that matter, as we normally think of them, even private schools. I think homeschooling is going to make enormous advances because pretty soon, because of the age of technology, the age of information, I hate to say this, but people like me will be out of business. I won't be teaching at a large state-supported institution because Milton Friedman, he can make an interactive video or he can make an interactive software package and students can learn from somebody who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> the best I can hope to do is maybe I'll be Milton Friedman's TA at the University of Georgia. But it seems to me that technology, the big issues of the day, no matter what issue you're talking about, I don't care whether it's the budget or schools, the big issue today is centralization versus decentralization. There's always been a tension between those two. There are some advantages, if you do it right, it's seldom done right, between the coordination of centralized decision-making, but there's always been a tremendous advantage of having people making decentralized decisions because they're the ones that know what the local information is. Technology is completely changing the equation between that attention, shifting the emphasis to decentralization. Uh, pretty soon, bureaucrats, centralized school bureauc bureaucracies, there are things of the past. The best we can do for these 
school bureaucrats pretty soon as we put a, a rubber steering wheel on their on their uh, desk so they'll still feel like they have some power pay them and just let them play with their steering wheel thank you thank you Dwight reminds me of a uh, principal high school principal in um, well, I just better say northern California not go any finer on it he had he and I were grousing about something or other, and he was telling me about four uh, instructors that were just so terrible, it was a shame that any kids had to ever sit with them. And I said, well, can't you talk to the other instructors and say, can't everybody in the high school just take one or two more? And that way we could um, assign these four people, uh, we'd just take one classroom and we'd divide it into fourths and give them a little room uh, where they wouldn't have students. And, uh, you know, I mean, the rest of the teachers, I'm sure, wouldn't mind burdening, you know, taking one extra person and just let these people come to school. It's a small town. Can't they, let these people uh, go to work every day. And this is the end of side one. Side two is already queued up. You know, what are you? Well, I'm sort of a teacher, except I don't have any students. Why do you stay there? Well, I've got only nine years left for retirement. <laughs> and what do you do? I sit in a room and, and, you know, play with my rubber steering wheel. So I think it's a great idea. Uh, Dwight uh, was president the last year of AFI. Uh, and, of course, I'll get the, uh, the acronym right in the, in the Association of Private Enterprise educators. And I got the opportunity to go to the Appy convention, and one of the speakers was Paul Cleveland. And I was listening to the man, I was just sort of uh, riveted, because it struck me that he had uh, depth and uh, bottom, uh, he had uh, character, there was something there, menschness, that I felt uh, attracted to. And I made a, a beeline for him after the, the uh, speech and said, are you sitting next to anybody at lunch? You know, could I sit next to you, please? And uh, there uh, grilled him and found out that, uh, excuse me, we had a nice conversation and found out that indeed I did have considerable uh, reason to admire this man. So uh, from uh, Birmingham S Southern College, a professor of finance and, um, uh, and business, uh, would you please welcome Paul Cleveland. Well, uh, Coming after Dwight, many of my comments will be uh, essentially the same in, in some respects. I'm an economist as well. And um, I did find it odd that, and, and quite frankly, somewhat naive to believe that state education is not also fundamentalist. Uh, I think it is fundamentalist. It's got a fundamental doctrine of its own. I think Dwight pointed out quite accurately what that fundamental doctrine is today. Very naturalistic view of reality. And... Um, and I think it's, it's such a view of reality that is most likely to promote merely information dissemination without critical thinking, without any critical depth to inquiry. <clears throat> because, simply put, no competing ideas will ever be offered or allowed in such an atmosphere. I mean, if you go into the school systems today, you quoted from Scripture. How many public schools do they break out the Bible every day and quote Scripture and try to dissect the meaning of Scripture? Uh, I'm not sure that it's very many. It, it seems to me that uh, if you're looking for atrocities due to fundamentalists, you can find them of every variety throughout history. And uh, in our own century, I think of uh, Joseph Stalin as one who was able to commit countless atrocities, uh, killing millions of uh, Russian citizens for a really rather pragmatic state of stance. And... Uh, State schooling will always lend itself towards promoting status ends. 
Uh, it's the nature of the nature of the beast. <clears throat> you know, several questions arise then. You know, uh, why support a, a monopolist uh, state education, which is uh, most likely to thwart intellectual exploration? Now, to be sure, there there are people of all varieties who, uh, left to their own ends, will uh, instead of trying to pursue intellectual discourse, will probably uh, move towards indoctrination. And the question is, will their children actually buy into it long term? Well, uh, some will and some won't. But if we if we really have a hope to to look and, and to have open discourse in a in, in a tolerant way in a, in a way that's really and truly plural, then you have to let people pursue the convictions of their beliefs in their, in their uh, efforts to try to understand the reality in which we live. Without that, then all, all discourse is ended. It, it, comes, it stops at that point. So there's quite a good article in, in, the, uh, public, in the handout that you've been given, and I would uh, point you to it. On the topic, it's, uh, the title of it is Pluralism, Relativism, and Tolerance, and it's in um, the section on uh, family versus state and education. And um, I would point you to that. I think it's, it's quite a good article, and, and it brings out some of the issues that are, that are important in this issue. And I'll turn it back over. Thank you, and I was going to be so prepared to have this pithy quote from one of the uh, articles, and but I'm not, so I won't. And we will uh, re-invite Professor Mitchell to uh, do a 10-minute response and further elaboration of his ideas. Dr. Mitchell. Well, I'm happy to, to report and to, and to console you both by saying that my ignorance of economics is total. Uh, so, come out. Uh, pretty much the same. Uh, I want to address only two of these concerns. One of them is the meaning of fundamentalism. Environmentalists are not fundamentalists. Health nuts are not fundamentalists. Anti-smoking people are not fundamentalists. They are capricious. Uh, they change. You know that cholesterol used to be good and then it got bad and there'll be another cholesterol. You know that rutabagas once were thought to do one thing and the other some Is the earth cooling? They change all the time according to the wind. But also, most of them, especially the ones who are school teachers, hundreds, maybe thousands of them have passed through these hands. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's their attitude to all of that. That's not fundamentalism. It's not even close to it. It's not anything like it. It is not a matter of doctrine. It is a matter of custom. And what the hell? That's not fundamentalism. Now, when Milton Friedman teaches me economics, I wish to God he would. I, oh, it's interesting. When he teaches me economics on a videotape, I cannot look up from the reading. I cannot... Turn the page. Wait, wait a minute. I cannot say, but Milton, hold it, hold it. You, you just said, and, and now you're saying, could, could you help me with that? Information is not learned. From the tape, I will learn. That's the proper word. I won't, I don't want I will receive what Milton Friedman says. That's it. 
and that is all. And the equation of information with anything else that's important in learning is just it's a damned dangerous mistake, and don't make it. Now, I will quickly pull Socrates out here. Remember, he's talking to somebody, and he's talking about the great Egyptian god, Thoth. And he tells what Thoth did for the Egyptians. He invented dice and cards, among other things. But Thoth also invented reading and writing. Good. I can because do that. The microphone is not always working. That is something that I can do. Except that it is working for the tape, so please use it for the tape. I will use it for the tape. The God so took... Good, thank you. He's my man. The God so took his inventions to the Pharaoh and said, look at these great inventions. And the Pharaoh said, well, cards, dice, they look good. And even arithmetic looks pretty good, but this reading and writing business, uh, you know, the people who invent things are not the best judges of them. Somebody else might better judge them, and I'm going to better judge this invention of yours, God. So it's no good. It will lead to the writing of many books and the reciting of many books, and it will lead men... There were no women in those days. This was not a sexist <laughs> remark, but this was before there were women. It will lead men into thinking that they are wise when they are only informed. Furthermore, a book is like a painting on the wall. There the figures stand in all of their glory. Their maker has made them wonderful. But when we ask them questions about what they're doing, they don't answer. And a book is like a hopeless baby that comes battling at us and when we ask it questions, it, it, goes, it can do is turn to look for its maker somewhere. So no books, no reading and writing. And damn it, I am coming more and more to think that that is the case. And when it comes to the superhighway and Milton Friedman or anybody you like on tape or Nova, I know people who think they're getting educated by Nova. Forget it. You're getting entertained. You're barely even getting informed. Schools love that. Now, I'm going to say this. I have nothing to say in favor of the schools. Absolutely nothing. They're terrible. Absolutely terrible. I will tell you this. There are some good people in there. They are working undercover. And the schools are so Byzantine and disordered that good teachers can go a whole career and never get caught. <laughs> that does happen. In short, those government schools are the worst possible form schooling, except for all the others. And that's where I'm going to stand with them. Now, I had a lot more notes and a lot more things to answer, but I'm out of time here and maybe in another life. Thank you very much. You saw me uh, ever so harshly beckon uh, Chris Cardiff over, and he is now looking for a backup amplifier system, so um, hopefully in a matter of... Uh, Milliseconds, a couple of trillion milliseconds, we will have a, um, uh, another amplifier. I did find that quotation. Again, in your book, in the family section, there's an article that I uh, started reading a couple of years ago with great intrigue because of the title, Private Hell of Public Education. Well, this uh, seems to be a pretty interesting article to read by a Bonnie Blodgett. And uh, 
up in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. It was published in Lear's magazine. Some of you might remember Lear's. And uh, she said uh, that to what do we want from the schools? And on page three of her article in the upper right-hand column, public schools were the great leveler, preparing bountiful harvests of American youth for a life of service to a larger community and to a uniform political culture. Their job wasn't to affirm group differences, but to remove those differences that might hobble the children's rightful advance to a better life than their parents had. So a new right is born, the right to a better life than your parent. And uh, somehow, anyway, this is an intriguing article if you want to read someone who says what we want from the school is sameness. And that is good. It is an excellent uh, expose or defense of the other side. Now we enter our question and answer period, and we have our microphone available, and, uh, and uh, Eric, uh, will you please be our microphone um, um, schlepper here? Pardon? You're still on duty. They're going to ask you questions, sir. This microphone, uh, you can pass back and forth. That microphone, you can pass back and forth. And uh, first question from Bob Bowers from Pennsylvania. Uh, just a second here. <laughs> That'll be fine, yes. Say the question and I'll repeat it. In fact, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, let's do it in that order. Severe people being uh, people that, uh, learning, however they do it, whatever kind of school they might attend. I, I'm I'm missing the last point. What what should we fear once we have lessened state power? Because I think that's what we're talking about. Okay. The question is, if uh, we have the separation of school and state, and we lessen state power, what is it that we are fearful about? And it's something else other than obviously state power. So, uh, uh, Dr. Mitchell, you want to pass that microphone just back and forth? I'm, I'm, I'm against the state power. Uh, they never have done much of anything good. No, I'm thinking of the IRS, basically. Uh-huh. This is a terrible thing to say. It is vain to seek freedom. The freedom is a fiction. Freedom is a concept we have made in our mind. Freedom is, freedom is an idea invented. As it was clearly delineated to us last night, I believe, by Professor West. Somebody thought of it. It's good. Very good idea. Very useful idea. It has permitted the exfoliation of, of wonderful human things. There's no question of it. But we're not free. And we shouldn't be free. We are bound by duties and obligations to each other. We are bound to the grave. We are bound to the limitations that are laid on all lives. Wonderful to play with the idea of freedom. Oh, God, I can vote, I can travel, trivial things. I think that this search for freedom, which always singles out some special thing. If I, if you would single out the IRS, you know, I'd be doing something, of course. But if we live together in a large community, and our community is large and too damn large, we're always going to have to restrict each other from this, that, or the other thing. And we're just going to have to live with it. And don't worry about it. It's not forever. We will die. I'm not interested in freedom. I'm sorry. No. That's a terrible answer. <laughs> well, we didn't hear any round of applause on that one. No. Uh, <laughs> we have two questions back here. In alphabetical order, please. Uh, say your name and uh, where you come from. 
My name is Carl Villar from New York City. Uh, Hi, Carl. Uh, Professor Mitchell, uh, your writing points out very well that the public schools are full of fools and charlatans, in your phrase. Uh, and I think the economists on the panel will agree that the free marketplace can also be full of fools and charlatans. Um, but um, you, you, Professor Mitchell, even if you're, if, if you're not interested in freedom per se, I do think you're interested in uh, letting people do the hard work of achieving dignity for themselves in coming to their own conclusions and mm. stumbling to uh, conclusions that might be right or wrong, but at least they are the product of the person's own mind. And so could you comment on coming back to schools on the value of letting parents of school-aged children um, come, to, uh, come to the choice of their own fools or charlatans, even if those are not the ones that we would choose? Mm. Yes. You, you should know that Carl and I are old friends although we have never met until this morning, but Carl has, his, his name and address have been in my computer for a long time. We are uh, old, old friends. Uh, I'd like to make a big distinction between parents and children and, and the business of freedom to coming to some, the freedom, yeah, I'll tell you what freedom you do have. The old German, the Gedanken sind frei, the Rauschen vorbei. Thinking is free. There's no place where they can stop that. There's no law that can stop that. There's not enough money in the world to stop the thinking. Now, you're talking about two thinkings. You're talking about the parents' thinking and the child's thinking. I want them to leave the child alone. I want them to show the child everything. Everything that can be shown. And send that child forth the way God sends Adam and Eve, at least according to Milton, forth. Out of the garden, the world lay all before them where to choose. And if you as a parent don't like your child's choice, that's tough. Your child has its own life. And your child will outlive you and make its own life. And if you put chains on it in childhood, then you're the one who's against freedom. Is that an answer to the question? I don't it's not, it is an answer to the question. I don't it is not one that I like. <laughs> but it is an yeah. answer to the question. Marshall. Yes. Dwight would uh, yeah, like to take the mic. Take the mic. Just a quick comment on one of your points. It's true there's a lot of fools and charlatan in the market as well as in public schools. One fundamental difference. In the market, the fools and charlatans lose their resources and they become less powerful. In the, in the public schools, <laughs> the fools and charlatan thrive on their failures, and they get more resources. That's a damn good point. I often have occasion to, to, uh, to advise a student who want to go into teaching. They take my courses. They want to become teachers. I always give them this warning. I say, listen, there you are going to encounter the, basically the silliest people in America. Uh, they... But they are also the most dangerous and vindictive people in America. So when they tell you to do something, do it. Or learn to appear to do it. <laughs> and you that. will flourish. And you're perfectly right. That's the place for fools and charlatans. Let's give him the mic. <laughs> uh, just one point on, on cutting children free totally. I, I think that's really a mistake, and it's something that we never do in practice. Now I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and, and my three-year-old, I, I have to set some limits on his behavior for his safety, for his pure safety. I mean, if he's going to stick his hand 
on a hot stove, I don't let him do that because it's a, it's a ridiculous thing to do. He'll be self-destructive. And, and so there are some issues that we know full well that in, in the process of children learning about the world in which they live, there are some hard realities to that world in which they live that it's worthwhile for them to come to grips with and that parents are there to serve as guides to those children and helping them to discern those things. To be totally undiscerning in one's life is utterly absurd. Uh, we, we have uh, a question here. The, the next person was Natalie, and then was Don, and then is Pat. Okay, and that should wrap it up. We've got uh, five minutes, so short answers, please. Um, I'm Natalie Lloyd from Bowling Green, Ohio, and I want to go back to the beginning of Mr. Mitchell's speech, Dr. Mitchell, sorry, and where he said that the teachers in the public school are hypocrites, and they may not mean what they are preaching, but the students believe. So um, you, you're going to, you're, you're still going to have problems even if the teachers don't believe it. I, I think you're underestimating the cynicism of modern students. By and large, they don't believe a damn thing those teachers tell them. The teachers tell them not to smoke, and they rush right out to the schoolyard and light up. And, and I applaud. Uh, um, uh, well, the thing is, I run into students every day, and they do believe what the teachers tell them. Then they had better be kicked a little bit. There's nothing I can do about them. Thank you. Uh, Don, Don, uh, Don had the next question. Uh, your name and where are you from? Uh, pardon? Don Pavel from Richmond, oh, yes. Virginia. Uh, what is the alternative yeah. to quality education if it's not the separation of school and state? What is the alternative? That's, that's a rough question. I think it's luck. <laughs> I, I went to public schools, and I had some wonderful teachers who made a big difference. A lot of people went to public schools and didn't have. I had parents who were, were totally negligent, as so though I didn't exist. They had a lot of money, though, and so I used that, and it was a good life. But I, I, did I learn anything from my mother and father? Only a lot of things not to do, a lot of ways not to live. But I was lucky, too. My allowance, my allowance in college was more than my salary in my first teaching job. My allowance allowed me to buy books and records and that kind of stuff. I, I, I think that cutting children loose, by, by that I mean, I don't mean tell them to put their hands on hot stoves. That's not an analogy at all. That's a, if they need to be told that, they, they have a big problem and they'll solve that for themselves. Of course, you have to tell them, step here, step here, don't step there. That's the way I have to train my dogs, of course. That's not the cutting them loose. The cutting them loose is leaving their minds alone, giving them all the books you, they can think of, letting them listen to any junk they want to listen to on the radio or any trash they want on the television. But you live in such a way. Live, not talk, not preach. Remember Whitman, sermons and logic. Never convinced. People listen to you and say, yeah, yeah, but they're never convinced. Don't talk. Live. Live in such a way that they know. See, that's, some people think that's trash. Some people think that's trash. You can't do it in less than you. Thank you.
just uh, allow me uh, one item here. One of my favorite uh, expressions comes from, and in, in, in to, to uh, underscore what you just said about living your life, it comes from uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who said, uh, preach the gospel at all times. Yeah. When necessary, use words. Hey. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, Pat Montgomery hey. from uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oops. A.S. Yeah. Um, Neal wrote Summerhill in the 50s. And in the 60s, he had to write Freedom Without License. His American publisher demanded that he write Freedom Without License. And he apologized for having to write that book. He said, I'm doing this for my American audience. They thought when I said freedom, tell your kid to run in front of a car. And he said, I apologize. No European mind would ever think that way oh, boy, about children point. and parents. And so uh, came Freedom Without License. My second comment is, uh, St. Francis of Assisi one morning said to his fellow monk, let's go downtown, I'm going to preach a sermon. So the monk got all dressed, they went down, their heads bowed in their arms in their big sleeves, and they came back. And the young monk said, Francis, I thought we were going to go to the town center and preach a sermon. He said, son, we just did. <laughs> okay, there was one more, somebody, there we are. Uh, Lita, but microphone, please. Although I can appreciate some of his concerns about people selecting the right kinds of education for their kids, um, if we don't have the right to choose or make selections for our children in terms of school, do we then get to the point we don't have the right to be lousy parents, too? That's right. Um, and then does somebody make that decision for us? I don't know. If there um, a God, he'll make the decision. Most of the people who are, certainly all the people here and most of the people who are interested in choosing schools for their children are those parents who are good parents, too, because they are concerned. Um, like all of us, I think one of my concerns is the inner city children, how you handle that situation. Are they your children? No. So what, well, is, yeah. what is your concern with them exactly? Well. Do you want to show us how liberal you are? We've or? got 30 seconds. No. No. Yeah. No, but my concern is uh, we can't make the decision that they can't be or we can't be good parents and someone else does that for us. You can. You have perfect freedom to choose to send your child to a different school. You can send your child to Exeter. You can send your child to St. Mary's in the field. You can send your child anywhere you please. Nobody is stopping you from doing that. You will have to pay for it, as you should. As to the poor children in the ghettos, Don't tell me how concerned you are about them. Go and teach them something. Frank, I don't believe in your concern about them. That's a color popular, oh God, I'm a good person, I'm concerned about the environment, I'm concerned about the children in the ghettos. I don't know any of the children in the ghettos. And I litter. Uh, but people, I don't see you living it. They're like, how Smokey the Bear came up in a conversation last night as midnight was drawing on. Do you remember Smokey the Bear? Smokey the Bear looks you in the eye. Because only you can prevent forest fires. What a miserable hypocrite. Only I can prevent forest fires. What's being announced here? Someone is saying, oh, we over here are very virtuous. And laying it on me that I haven't prevented any forest fires. That bumper sticker talk about the children in the ghetto. When you come out of the ghetto, then talk. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a bad person. <laughs> One of the uh, 
one of the strictures in uh, some uh, religions is that if you do uh, good works, not to boast on them. So it could quite be that someone is working hard in the inner city ghetto uh, but uh, with inner city children, uh, but uh, cares not to, uh, to talk about it at all. So I'm not sure that we can tell just by the absence of, uh, of uh, bombast uh, that a person is uh, in chest beating of their uh, good works, uh, that those good works don't exist. I'm sorry, I see the sign, but I have a 30-second, 12-second footnote. 12 seconds. I, I, I know about the fight going on about prayer in school. Should you pray? Should you have to? I pray in school. I pray in school every day. I perhaps pray to some divinity that you're not even thinking of, but I pray in school every day. Jesus talked about that. He said, you know, when you do an arms, don't blow a trumpet in front of yourself. When you pray, go into your own room and shut the door. These people who want coordinated prayers in school want to show how quiet they are. There's nothing more than that. And I'll have no part of them. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. I'm really sorry about this. I'm not. I am ecstatic. I am ecstatic. In fact, we're hoping that the folks for the preservation of public education invite us to come and speak at the... For more information about the separation of school and state, you're welcome to write or phone us. Our phone number, 209-292-1776. The fax, 209-292-7582.